Let us turn in our Bibles then to the first psalm, Psalm 1, and we shall consider this evening the first three verses under the title, Our Walk with God, Meditation. This is, I believe, the third sermon in the series, the evening series, Walking with God. So the subject matter is no different than it would have been although the passage is, is different tonight than is uh, advertised in the bulletin. Let us hear God's Word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord bless this reading of his word. Once again, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here this evening. And we may um, sing songs of praise that we may hear your word proclaimed. We thank you for the privilege we have of coming. We thank you for that. Even in America, we have this right to attend worship, that we may do it freely. We pray that what we hear tonight will be a blessing to our heart, that we may dwell on it, and it may help us understand you better. We thank this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I walk with God in meditation. Uh, I believe the first two sermons in the series were on Scripture, first of all, and prayer. And so it makes entire sense then that in this third sermon of the series, we come to the subject of meditation, for these three things are really bound together. They are very closely connected. There's a sense in which we cannot truly read the Scriptures, we cannot truly pray unless there is this element of meditation woven in together. And as you look at these opening verses of Psalm 1, you'll notice the matter of meditation listed or referred to in verse 2. On his law, he meditates day and night. One Scottish minister who is still amongst us says this, meditation is a scriptural duty as binding as Bible reading and prayer. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that we live in something of a contradictory age. On the one hand, we have the glorification of the busy, whereby we are tempted to run around like headless chickens, unable to stop, always on this conveyor belt with so much exhaustion, so much weariness and jadedness, and yet on the other hand, we have the idolization of pleasure, and these two contradictory things that we see in our own day really marginalize this whole idea of meditation. 
Those of you who are young parents will know very well that it's hard to get time to yourself. Those of us who are accustomed to the use of social media know the challenge that belongs to us to make sure that the use of social media does not rob us of that quietness before the Lord. Reminded of the words of Philip Henry, who was the father, who lived in the 17th century, the father of the great commentator Matthew Henry. And he wrote this, bearing in mind that it was quite difficult to get to church in his day. It is easier to go six miles to hear a sermon, presumably on a horse or horse and cart, than to spend one quarter of an hour meditating on it when you come home. And so this element of our walk with God, which Pastor Bob has included in the series, I can only speak personally, is highly relevant and is very important because it is a battle for us in our day, not only to meditate, but to meditate as God would have us do so. And so, before we come to these three verses tonight, I want us to note three general observations about meditation. The first is that meditation is not new. Meditation is as old as man himself. It testifies to us that there is life outside of us individually and outside of time. Remember what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, that God has set eternity into our hearts so that we might seek Him. And it is then upon that foundation, the fact that while we are created in time, we have a capacity to look for that which is outside time, that we meditate, that we seek, that we pursue. And so, having that capacity then, man, no matter his religion, no matter his philosophy, has an interest in meditation. And so, if you go and look at uh, the religions of the world, you find that meditation is part of Buddhism, meditation is part of Hinduism, meditation is part of Islam, Meditation is part of Judaism. Meditation is part of Christianity. And here as we come to this first psalm, what is called the preface psalm, we notice the idea here in verse 2, as we've noted, the idea being that of sighing or murmuring. And when the uh, Latin theologians came to translate the Hebrew Scriptures, and there are actually two words for uh, meditate in Hebrew, when they came to translate the particular word, they came up with this meditatio, and the idea is that of thinking, contemplating, devising, pondering. We're concerned then tonight to consider not simply meditation in general, because everybody's doing meditation in one sense or another, but we are specifically concerned to understand what the Bible says about meditation and its place in our walk with God. The second observation is that meditation is not wrong in itself. The very fact that meditation, or as we Christians sometimes call it, contemplation, 
is a vital and essential element of our walk with God, as essential as Bible reading, as essential as prayer, means that it cannot be wrong in itself. Common to meditation is the particular focus on an object, thought, or activity. And the idea is to obtain mental clarity or an emotional peaceful state. And the idea in so many forms of meditation, and Christianity is not uh, adverse to this idea, is the reduction of stress, anxiety, depression, and pain. Notice how the psalm begins. Blessed is the man, or literally, blessednesses to the person. And then you think of how Jesus building on the back of His Scripture, the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, came up with the Beatitudes. And He used this term consistently, makarios, blessed. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who meek. And He goes through the Beatitudes. But if we are to understand what this blessedness is, so far as the Scriptures are concerned, my mind goes to the hymn of John Newton, solid joys and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know. And I think when Newton spoke about these solid joys, he's speaking about this whole notion of blessedness, a sort of serious happiness in God, for God, through the gospel of God's Son. And so, it's not wrong in and of itself to meditate, but if we are to walk with God aright, then we need a biblical view of meditation. And so, I put it to you that ancient and contemporary forms of meditation are lacking in two ways. First of all, in their forms. When the object of the meditation is someone or something other than God, then the meditation runs awry. Or when the notion of meditation runs contrary to the biblical view of meditation, then the ancient or contemporary form of meditation, the religious or the secular form of meditation, is not that which is essential to our walk with God. And the second way in which ancient and contemporary forms of meditation are lacking and not simply in the object. Who is it about whom we are meditating? But it is also the end for which we are meditating. You see, when you come to the biblical view of meditation, it's not about me and my peace and my anxiety ultimately. It's about me and my God. It's about understanding my Maker and my Redeemer better than I do. It's about finding our joy in Him. And you will know as Presbyterians the way in which the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins. I think it begins very profoundly and very correctly. What is the chief end or what is the chief purpose of man? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I think it's uh, John Piper, who's not actually a Presbyterian, who says that really we ought to reword the answer to that first question of 
the Shorter Catechism. Our chief purpose in life is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. In other words, then, uh, we are trying to set out tonight a biblical view of meditation, saying that meditation is common to man. It is because God has set eternity into our hearts, and therefore, if everybody is meditating to some form or another, we need to understand as Christians, what is that meditation that is essential to our walk with God? The third general observation I'd make is this. I think it's important to make it, that meditation is not saving. You see, there have been many people in the history of the world, very religious people, and many people in our world today who are highly motivated by meditation. I can think of one friend who I knew when studying in Germany many years ago now, from Italy, who uh, left the Catholic Church. And what has she substituted for Catholicism? Well, it is this idea of meditation. It is this idea of finding my peace, finding my road in life. And she has, to a certain degree, according to her own testimony, found that peace that she's looking for. I'm not sure for how long it will last. It certainly won't carry her into eternity. But you see, we as Christians need to understand that the meditation we're speaking about tonight is not that which saves us, but that which is the fruit of being saved. So when we come into this first psalm then, and we read that blessed is the man, or blessedness is to the person, we need to understand that idea of being blessed in two ways. First of all, we are objectively blessed. When we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we enter into a standing which we don't have by nature, and that is a blessed standing. We are a son, we are a daughter of God, we are a justified sinner. We can use all these New Testament depictions to say what our objective blessing is by being related to God. But you see, if we are going to know the sense, the experience of that blessing, then we need to nurture a subjective sense of blessing. And this is why we emphasize here, and not only here, but in our Reformed churches, that justification is by faith alone, but it is not by a faith that is alone. Because a person can claim to have this objective standing of being in Christ, have a blessed standing, and yet so live as to undercut the sense of the blessedness that there is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the psalmist then comes to speak about the blessed person here, he's saying to these who are numbered amongst the people of God, you are blessed if you are resting in the God of the covenant. But if you are to know the profundity of being blessed as a member of the covenant community, then you need to live as one who is in 
relationship with God. What are we saying then? We are saying that this meditation, which is so important to our walk with God, is not the means whereby we are saved, but it is the spiritual exercise embarked upon by those who are saved, so that they might come to know better the God who has saved them, the God who has redeemed them. That is what is going on here in the psalm. Notice that the meditation spoken of is not of sitting around or mantras, but nevertheless it is real, and we'll look more at what that means. And so we turn then to the opening three verses of the psalm. And the psalmist speaks of meditation then within the broader context of blessing. I dare say that nobody would be involved in meditating if they did not think that there was a blessing attached to it. And that is certainly true of the people of God as well. And so the first point I want to make from verse 1 is this that there are blessings derived from what we don't do. No amount of meditation can help us. If we are living lives doing the things that we shouldn't do. And so the psalmist here says that, first of all, we don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. And what he does here in verse 1, then, is trace the backsliding of the person of God. And he does so along two tracks. The one is by categorizing different types of unconverted person, the wicked, the sinner, the scoffer. And the other line then is from walking to standing to sitting. And along those two lines, he traces the backsliding of the person of God so that although they retain the blessed standing they have in being related to God, yet they lose the sense of blessedness. They know that they are, to use New Testament terminology, a Christian, but they've lost the joy of being a Christian because they are not walking as they should walk. And so let us look at these three phases of regression. Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. The wicked is the best description that the psalmist has of somebody who is not converted. The wicked person may even look upright, but the problem is, in their heart, God is not ruling. And so, although they might look upright from a visible perspective, yet, if you were to peel back the layers and get to their thinking, get to their heart, God is not on the throne. And so, the psalmist says, if you would retain the sense of being blessed in the Lord Jesus Christ, do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or the wicked. Now, of course, the psalmist is not saying that you never go for advice to the unconverted person. I can assure you, if our car breaks down tonight in the snow on the way home, I won't care two hoots whether the person who stops to get the engine back going is converted or not. I will spiritually, but not so far as the engine is concerned. That's not what the psalmist is saying, that we as Christians know everything. We don't have to ask the unconverted for anything. We know it all. That's not what he's saying. 
What he is saying is this, that our backsliding begins and the loss of our sense of blessedness begins when we put ourselves under the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly for principles of life because they are living life, refusing the rule of God over them. And then the second phase in the regression, we do not stand in the way of sinners. Well, who are the sinners? Well, the sinners are the wicked who are now beginning to translate this ungodly principle of life, whereby God doesn't rule over them, into an actual style of life. And the regression is found not simply that we're mixing now with a more serious form of unconverted person, but that we are no longer walking with them, we are standing with them. The picture that comes to my mind is this, that you walk out of your driveway and you meet a neighbor and you walk down the street with a neighbor and then you come to the end of the street and you just stand there speaking because you become more involved with them, more embroiled with them, more conversant with them. And so it is here, when we lose that sense of blessedness, it's not simply because we are walking under the counsel of the ungodly, but now we are standing with sinners. Notice also what the psalmist says. It's not simply that we are standing with sinners, but that we are standing in the way of sinners. In other words, we are so backsliding now that the evidence that we belong to God is becoming rather blurry. And the sinner, seeing our compromises, seeing our inconsistencies, is now obstructed from seeing Christ in me. David had this great fear. You can read of it in Psalm 69 and verse 5. And he pours out his heart in the psalm because he is afraid that there are those who will not come to God because of his witness. And so he says, Psalm 69, verses 5 and 6, O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I've done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. You know that fear, that feeling? And so the third element of the regression, we don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Well, who are the scoffers? Well, it's pretty obvious. It's those who are resolutely setting their face against God, and they will do everything to mock God. They will do everything to belittle God's people. And here is the person who's numbered amongst the people of God, not walking in the counsel of the ungodly anymore. He's gone past that. Not standing in the way of sinners. He's past that. He's now sitting in the seat of the scoffer. Birds of a feather flock together. And here is this professing person claiming to know God with the scoffers. By which point we have every right to wonder whether he was truly born again of the Spirit of God. And so what are we saying then in terms of meditation? We are saying that if we do the things we don't do as professing people of God, then there is no amount of meditation that will give us mental clarity. There is no amount of meditation will give us tranquility if we are living outside the revealed will of God. 
And this is why both ancient and contemporary forms of meditation are erroneous in this regard, many other regards as well, but in this regard, by sowing the lie of Satan, that spiritual exercises, no matter what they be, whether it be Bible reading, whether it be prayer, whether it be meditation, can make up for disobedience to the revealed will of God. It cannot. And so the psalmist comes to us and says, don't backslide. You might not lose your standing in Christ. In fact, you won't if you're truly saved. But you will lose the sense of being blessed. And so if you lose that sense of blessing, no amount of meditation will make up for that unless you get back through repentance and faith to the path of obedience. Well, secondly then, as we turn to verse 2, there are blessings derived from what we do do. Christianity is never simply a matter of what we don't do. The person who is objectively blessed with salvation in Christ wants to know those blessings to the fullest in doing two things. And this is what the psalmist mentions. First of all, he delights in the law of the Lord. Some forms of meditation are all about emptying the mind, sort of tabula rasa, a clean slate. All you have to do is empty the mind, the past or whatever it might be. And then you can come to your own personal nirvana, perfect tranquility of mind. Just empty the mind. But that's not the biblical view. The biblical view is this, that instead of emptying the mind, you fill the mind, but you fill the mind with the Word of God. And so the psalmist says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. What is the psalmist speaking about? Well, he's speaking about the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. He's speaking about the Word of God then written. And he's saying, this is what we do. We delight in the law of the Lord. Why do we delight in the law of the Lord? Because it tells us that God is our creator. It reveals His attributes and His glory. We get a sense of who God is. We can get so much from creation round about us. Paul says, doesn't he, in Romans 1, that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen by the things that are made. But when we come to God's Word, which is written, we have a more sure record of the nature of God because it is inscripturated and we are given a greater volume of revelation about God. And so we read and we see God there displayed as the great God of heaven and earth. He is the creator. But as the Old Testament Israelite read the law, they also came to read of the sacrificial system and the gospel. They came to see that this just and this holy God meets with sinful people. And there's coming a day when this great mediator is going to come. And this great mediator who's pictured in the sacrificial system, somebody who would pour out his life's blood so that we can come into this personal relationship with God. And this was the wonder, this was the joy of the Israelite, that this great creator of heaven and earth has chosen Israel, a small people, amongst the smallest peoples of all the earth. And would you believe it? 
I am born into Israel. I'm circumcised into my flesh. And this great God is the one whom I can come to know through the mediator. And likewise, today, by the Spirit, we have received the delight in the law of the Lord. What is the law of the Lord to us? Well, of course, it is the Word of God, which is now written. That's the tremendous thing. We have the law of the Lord, the Word of God now written, so much more than the children of Israel had in their day. And not only do we have the display of God's greatness and the gospel written as for the children of God in their infancy, we now see from our vantage point that Christ has come. Not only has Christ come, the Spirit has come. And when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, know our sins forgiven, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we can delight in the law of the Lord. So what's the second thing we do? Well, says the psalmist, we meditate day and night upon the law. Our delight is fed by meditation. There was a man by the name of Thomas Akempis. Some of you may know him because of his book, The Imitation of Christ. He died in 1471. I was highly impressed to learn that he copied the Bible four times. And this is what he said, I have no rest but in a nook with the book. Later, the reformers came and then the Puritans came. And one of the most well-known Puritans, John Owen, said this, meditate on the Word in the Word. In other words, we do not simply skim over the Word, but we so saturate ourselves in the Word. We so pray that the Spirit would give us that delight in the Word, that illumination as we read the Word, that we may, even when we don't have a Bible with us, be able to meditate upon it day and night. This is why it's so important we teach our children the Bible. This is why it's so important we have an expository form of preaching each week. What does expository preaching do? It not only tells you what a specific passage means, it teaches you how to study the Word for yourself so that even when Pastor Bob is nowhere near you during the week, you have been given the principles whereby you can study the Word in a reliable way. And hiding it in your heart so that you don't sin against the Lord, you also, when you wake up in the middle of the night, the promises come to mind, the great statements about God's glory and His greatness, the great statements about the gospel come to mind, so that when Satan is attacking you in the middle of the night, you can meditate upon the Word, and it's like this buffer, it's like this hedge around us, so that Satan cannot touch us. He can try to take away our joy, but he cannot take away our salvation. One person has written this, if we hope to move beyond the superficialities of our culture, we must be willing to go down the recreating silences. What does he mean? He means that in this age of the glorification of the busy, whereby you're not worth much unless you're busy, and this glorification, very relevant on Super Bowl evening, of sport, and I love sport like the next person, but it's become an idol, whereby, as a believer, you create spaces of silence, and you say, no, this is my time with God. 
And more importantly, it's my time away from the world because I have these voices coming at me all the time. And I create this space of silence. And this is where I listen out for God. I open the Bible. And I say, God, come, illuminate my mind. I'm not asking you to empty my mind. I'm asking you to fill my mind with you. And yet, there's a caveat here. The silences that we create in order to meditate need not be silent. Think of what the idea of meditation means. It means to ponder aloud, to moan, to hum, to utter, to speak, to muse. And this is perhaps a test as to how well adjusted we are to this idea of meditation, that we are so soaked in the Word and we are so conversant with God as we read the Word that we find ourselves blurting out things, almost speaking to ourselves as if we're becoming insane. And what is happening? It's the Word of the Lord by the Spirit of God welling up inside us so that I cannot but speak out what I've seen and heard. And this is where outreach begins. David, under different circumstances, says this in Psalm 39, verse 3, My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then spoke I with my tongue. And the more we learn what it is to meditate and have God's Word welling up inside us, that the more it becomes second nature to blurt out what God is speaking to us. And as we share, as we utter, as we hum, as we murmur aloud what God is saying to us, it's then that people know that we have been with God. Don't think we are to think then that the psalmist is speaking here of a monastic lifestyle, whereby you spend your whole life alone. No, Jesus is our model, not the monastics. Jesus, you recall, got away from his disciples. He went up to the mountain. He communed with his father. And then what did he do? He came back down and he ministered. But you see, we are living in a context in which there has been this monastic tradition which says, well, in order to be of earthly use, you have to get away from the world. Well, part of that is true. But there's one instance which comes to my mind of a man called Simeon Stylites. And he died in the year 459. And would you believe he spent 39, 37 years living on top of a platform? And he built bigger platforms. And this was in a place that we call Aleppo in Syria, which has become familiar to us. And the last platform he built was 50 feet, I believe, above the ground. And he lived on this platform, meditating. And even when his mother died, they said, well, are you coming down for your mother's funeral? No, I will see her again. And so they brought his mother's body before the platform so that he could uh, pray over his mother before, I guess, they went and buried her. And then when he died, they brought him down. And the irony of it was, of course, that the bigger the platforms he built, the more people came to see him. 
Now, of course, he could hear them, but he, he was busy praying and whatnot. But it's a real shame that we remember him for living on a platform. I think God has a greater vision for us. He wants us so to meditate upon Him so that when we come out of these recreated silences, we're ready to serve with a passion. Just as Jesus did. And so thirdly, there are blessings derived from what we become. Verse 3, the ESV here says, He is like a tree, or the King James Version, He shall be. But the point is that the psalmist is not making a prophecy. He's making a statement. He's saying, in effect, that some things are automatic in life. If you don't do what you shouldn't do, and you do do what you should do, then as Christians, you will become what you should become. That's the way God works. And when we're thinking about our walk with God, he's saying, if you don't walk into the counsel of the ungodly, you don't stand in the way of sinners, you don't sit in the seat of the scoffer, but you delight in the law of the Lord, you meditate upon it day and night, then you will become what you should become. Now, I'm not going to keep you long tonight, but notice what he says, verse 3. First of all, we become upright like a tree planted. We've all seen what happens when the tree has roots which go down insufficiently, and the storms come, don't they? And the tree falls. How many of you have been to the sequoias? The biggest trees in the world, not in terms of height, but in terms of mass. You can go and see them there in the west. And they have very shallow root system, and so they fall very easily. And so there you go and see General Sherman, you see General Grant, but you see all these other sequoia trees lying broken on the ground. Why? Because they had huge masses, but they didn't have the root system to sustain them, and so they fell over. And this is the person who doesn't delight upon the law of the Lord. This is the person who doesn't meditate upon the law of the Lord day and night. The root system has not gone down very deep, and so they may look strong, but temptation comes, but affliction comes, Satan rages, and they're wiped out. What do the roots do? They grab the soil. And so, meditation has the blessing of creating uprightness. And then, secondly, of refreshing us. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Commentators wonder what these streams are. You can go down the Rogue River and you come to a point at which there are two intersections, and it could be that a tree was planted at such an intersection, and its roots go down and drink of the water. But it's more likely that the tree was planted near or by or in an irrigation scheme, and so it had plenty of access to water. And what's the lesson? You see, the lesson is this. It's not enough for the tree simply to be upright. If it's going to be living, it needs to be drinking the water. And so it is with us, it's not enough for us to look morally upright or orthodox in our theology if there's no life in the believer. And so we need not only the Word, but we need the Spirit. And it's as the roots suck up the water of the Spirit, that's when the tree remains not only upright, but living, vibrant, alive. Thirdly, we're fruitful. It yields its fruit in its season. 
with refreshment comes the fruit. The person who meditates is not erratic in their walk, but learns consistency. We've gone through Galatians 5 on Sunday mornings, growing in season in love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, or faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. And what is more, remember how Jesus, when he gives the statement about him being the vine, says, by this my Father is glorified that you bring forth much fruit. You see, there's the fruit, but what's the fruit of ancient or secular or contemporary meditation? Well, the fruit, as is claimed, is, well, I feel some sense of peace. It's me and my peace. But God is not in the picture. It's me and my emotional well-being, but God is not in the picture. And the psalmist here then gives a far more profound sense of the benefit of meditation with his biblical view. It produces fruit and does so for the glory of God. And what is more, fourthly, the tree is preserved. Its leaf does not wither. You see, there are seasons in the believer's life, and we don't feel we're bringing forth much fruit. And Satan may come to us and say, well, you used to be bringing forth a lot more fruit. Where's your fruit? And we may buy into his lie that somehow we have gone awry when we may not have gone awry if we're involved in biblical meditation. And so what does the believer seeking to walk with God say to Satan when Satan comes to him and says, where's your fruit? This is what we say to him. Now listen, Satan, I may be out of season, but do you see my leaves? What does that tell you? I'm still under the word. I'm still saying my prayers. I'm still trying to be a Christian in an ungodly age. What does that tell you, Satan? I tell you what it tells you, Satan, is that I am alive and the season will return wherein I bear more fruit. Fifthly, we are prosperous. In all that he does, he prospers. I want to say that our prosperity is according to God's definition. He may grant us health and wealth. But that's not how God is defining our prosperity. The sense of our prosperity is in His timing, and the experience of it is for His glory. And so what am I saying? I'm saying that no matter the temptation put before us today, wherein meditation is the buzz theme, and you may have colleagues who are involved in meditation. And you may wonder whether their meditation is more effective than your meditation upon God's Word. And what the psalmist is saying to us tonight is this, you cannot get a more effective form of meditation containing such promise as you find here. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, I've been in pastoral work long enough to know that someone here is probably asking, 
Well, what does that mean for religious and secular forms of meditation today? Can a Christian seeking to walk with God embark upon such forms? And so as we close tonight, I want to leave you with four principles. They're draft principles. I haven't had time to reflect more upon them. But let me say this, and Pastor Bob can correct me if he thinks I've gone awry. But the first principle I'd say is this, that biblical meditation alone is required and is sufficient for your walk with God. You do not have to do yoga. You do not have to embark upon some religious or secular form of meditation to think, now I'm really meditating. You need to get in the Word, and I need to get in the Word. Secondly, we may draw from other forms of meditation the principles of common grace or common providence. And I'm here thinking chiefly of physical exercises. Some Christians do sincerely believe that yoga has helped them in terms of the physical component of that meditation. And it is because of a doctrine of common grace or common providence that I am prepared to say, not simply on that doctrine, but because I don't know, you may very well be right. But you need to be very careful the way in which you deal or take from secular or religious forms of meditation. Thirdly, we are not to enter into other forms of meditation which in its form or processes contradict biblical meditation, serve as a rival to it, or give the impression that source of religious or secular meditation is legitimate. Nor are we to mislead the weaker brother or sister. If we are simply taking the physical aspect of physical exercise, then don't mislead the younger brother or sister in Christ to think that we are also taking the religious or secular aspects of it. And fourthly, by focusing on biblical meditation, we emphasize a right that we are to live above all for God's glory, and that it is by glorifying Him that we enjoy Him and know the greatest blessedness in this life and the next. May God bless these thoughts. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for its guidance, for its direction. But we thank you above all that you have revealed yourself unto us. And we praise you for the way in which you meet with us through your word and by the Spirit. Help us to counteract the superficiality of the age and to mature in getting aside with you, to fellowship with you, to reflect upon your greatness and your glory, and to bring forth the fruit of uprightness, of refreshment, of fruit, of perseverance, claiming what you say here, that in all that we do, we prosper. Glorify your name through our prosperity. And we'll bring you the thanks and the praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.